Thank you for downloading Atypical, the podcast. If you enjoy our work, all we ask is that you leave us a review in your podcast player and share it with your friends. It helps us reach more people, and it's always great to hear from you. Thank you again, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of Atypical, the podcast. Hello and welcome to Atypical the Podcast, the podcast where we look at life from a more, well, atypical perspective. My name's Simon Heave, your host, and I'm afraid this is another Simon Talks About a Thing episode. There is also a little bit of a trigger warning today because, well, we're going to dive into the world of applied behaviour analysis, also known as ABA. Some do hail it as a shining beacon in autism treatment, touting it as the only scientifically validated method. On the other hand, there's something of a voice of dissent, with a few of us critics, including some of us here atypical, labelling it as well, functionally abusive. If this episode is going to be troubling or upsetting to you, all I can say is thank you for listening this far, and we hope our next podcast will cover something a little bit lighter. Now then, a brief bit up front. It has taken me some weeks to prepare this episode, and I thought I'd probably have a couple more weeks, but trying to fill space. Um, I, I uh, Within my notes, which are spread out in front of me, because being both autistic and ADHD, my notes are slightly out of whack and slightly haphazard. Please don't tell my boss or any time I go for an interview, because I'm apparently very organised. Anyway, one of the things I've got here highlighted in sort of bold yellow is the importance of language. So many of us in the autistic community are, I guess, somewhat vocal about how we're addressed. And, and for many, being autistic is an intrinsic part of who we are. And, you know, we prefer to be, you know, described in such a way rather than, for example, called a person with autism. What is autism? Is it my cat? Are they with me? The, the debate doesn't really stop there. There's a whole bunch of stuff around the terms we use, like treatments and therapy, and all of these things are often under scrutiny. I'm going to be using some of these terms throughout this podcast, and uh, wherever possible, I'm going to try and explain what they meant within the context of what I'm talking about. But if I miss say anything or whatever it is, that's entirely my fault, nobody else's. So why did I decide to look into ABA? I, I, I've seen mention of it on social media on and off over the last couple of years, and I also spotted that certain autism organisations, most importantly Autism Speaks, actively promote ABA on their website and in their materials, talking up its scientifically validated approach. I realise this is a audio medium and you can't see me doing air quotes, but sure. And apparently it leads to significant improvements in autistic kids. Not only can you not see my air quotes, you can't see my eyes rolling. But anyway, I, I spotted that Autism Speaks recommends ABA as a top treatment, calling it the only proven treatment and the best method for managing autistic behaviour. So this means that parents and carers in particular who might go researching treatments after little Clementine or Arthur get an autism diagnosis they will quickly find recommendations for ABA from apparently well-meaning charities like Autism Speaks. Now, the pervasiveness of these recommendations from major organisations has driven up demand for ABA in recent years, and we kind of see its popularity varying a bit across sort of different geographical regions. 
you know, it, it is used in the UK and Europe, but it's much more prevalent in the United States, in, in North America. And indeed, I, I couldn't find I couldn't find exact stats, I guess it's fair to say, on, on how many people have gone through ABA treatments. It's pretty clear that within the American medical system, ABA is, I, I would say, widely respected. Uh, I have issues with that term, but still as a leading therapy for autism. My lovely co-host Marianne, when I was talking to her about this, found me an interesting paper that showed that between 2010 and 2014, 38 US states passed laws saying that insurers have to cover ABA because of some kind of parent advocacy movement. Interestingly, a teacher friend I was talking to yesterday told me that schools in the UK, which apparently some of them provide ABA, are completely full. Many of them have waiting lists. And again, this is partly because parents have pushed councils hard to provide it. Um, I, I found loads of surveys which show parents who've used ABA have extremely positive opinions of it. This kind of gets other parents looking into it and therefore the cycle you know, continues. Big autism charities, and again, I hope you can hear my air quotes, fund ABA research at quite prestigious universities around the world. Some of them now are even offering degree programs in training new ABA therapists. I, whilst I was sort of doing this, I mentioned sort of the, the weird sort of domination of, of ABA to a medic friend because, you know, drawing on some very long forgotten nursing training, it felt kind of unusual to me to see so much of this when you consider that pure behavioural treatments aren't really medically favoured anymore. You know, for conditions still diagnosed today, like, I don't know, depression or, or, or anxiety, and said depression or autism, depression or anxiety, the most common treatments are more of a sort of cognitive behavioural therapy approach, not this sort of old school strict behaviourism, which is basically what ABA is. So ABA obviously involves, I say obviously, some of you may not know, but most of you have ever listened to any of these things. Anyway, I'm going off topic, aren't I? This is why I need other co-hosts. They keep me on track. So ABA, <laughs> he says, distracting himself. ABA uh, involves analysing behaviour through experiences, the, the conduct and its consequences and how they can be controlled through rewards and punishments. The goal is always stated to be to decrease so-called undesirable behaviours whilst increasing pro-social behaviours like eye contact and talking. So this all seemed a bit odd to me. I found that applied behavioural analysis, I'm going to say it again every now and then, ABA, has been praised by proponents as the only scientifically validated method of treating or curing autism. At the same time, a number of, let's say, critics have condemned ABA as abusive. Now, I wanted to better understand these debates, so I decided to research and make some notes to myself to outline ABA's rise from, as many people see it, an experimental therapy to its admittedly contested status today as the gold standard of autism treatment. I found that there have been people against it since almost the beginning, with early critics of ABA focused on its effectiveness and use of aversives. More recent criticism has additionally targeted ABA's underlying goal of curing autism. You can probably hear that in my voice. Um, and whilst most of these critics are often autistic self-advocates, you know, part of that neurodiversity movement, we, we do, most of us, reject the medical model of autism. And for me, I kind of oppose that treatment or cure thing. 
In preparing my notes today, I, I tried to seek out accounts by autistic individuals as, as my primary source, alongside my usual slew of scientific articles and papers and books, and it has taken me more weeks than I'd care to count to properly read, and I haven't finished all of them, and I should note that, again, whilst ABA is used in the UK and Europe, in the US it's more prevalent, and the majority of papers and accounts that I've used to prepare this have more of a US bent to them. I know we have quite a good listenership in the United States, so this obviously will appeal to you, but for the rest of the world, um, but particularly obviously in my own home country here in the United Kingdom, um, uh, there, there, there's some give and take, I guess, on some things. But one of the really interesting things that I found is that sort of historians, if you will, of neurodiversity have given very little attention, really, to ABA and its sort of current prominence. I, I was talking to a, a philosophy friend of mine about this, and um, he, he drew comparisons between the sort of the neurodiversity critique of ABA and that sort of 20th century social movement that rejected pathologization in things like gay rights and in mental health. And, and I should really add here, by the way, ABA, gay conversion therapy, they come from the same roots and even some of the same people. So my initial readings all suggested sort of the 1960s. We pointed to researchers like, um, I'm going to say this wrong, but hey-ho, uh, Ol Ivar Lovas, a Norwegian-American, and, and do remember that name, who, who first applied behaviourist principles of conditioning through rewards and punishments to modify autistic children's actions. Lovas used frankly disturbing and harsh methods. He would beat children, he'd subject them to food deprivation, to electric shocks. He, he, his aim was to try and make the children indistinguishable from their peers. Something I actually found in, in one of the papers I read was that Lovas had a somewhat simultaneous involvement in something called the Feminine Boy Project during the 1970s, where he catalogued and developed interventions into gender and sexual non-conforming identities and behaviours of young people. That's yeah, uh, if you're particularly interested, I will point you towards some of those papers. They are they they are not they are not fun reading. But the fact is that he did all of this whilst also funding, supervising, and collaborating with his students, a chap called George Reckers, who I believe is a major advocate in the so-called gay and trans conversion therapies world. I, I suspect we may have to do an episode on that alone sometime when I've had a chance to bring my blood pressure back to a normal range and preferably host in on this because holy moly there were some very difficult things to talk about there one of the things i kind of found about uh, in my research for this was a lot of the books are reasonably bare but seem to suggest that although there was some controversy originally lovas gained quite a lot of support by involving parents as co-therapists or co-abusers if you prefer and, and claims that aba could lead to recovery the, the very idea that we need to recover from autism required me to go for a walk and have a very large glass of wine when I read this. So, yeah. Anyway, by the 1980s, disability views were evolving. Lovas discontinued some of his harshest methods when, you know, the, the kind that even animal trainers would be saying are ineffective on dogs. And, and something I'm going to come back to a few times throughout the, the course of this episode is that in 1987, he published a study that purported to show ABA made about half of the patient's and again, air quotes, normal functioning. And as a result of, of this alone, you know, ABA's popularity skyrocketed. So like I say, I, I did a certain amount of, of, of reading and, and preparation for this. And, and I've been reading accounts where autistic campaigners, activists, whatever terminology you want to use, have campaigned against centres that still use punishments. 
I read the the reports of one group in New York that equates ABA's goal of making autists effectively appear neurotypical as being the same as forcing African-Americans to become white. There's a notion for you. Um, and, and virtually every autistic or ABA survivor's account I, I could read supported something we often talk about in this podcast, that autism should be viewed through a social, not a medical model. Interestingly, supporters of ABA kind of counter this by saying that proper ABA no longer uses aversives or, or like I say, abuse. Um, and behaviour change is intrinsic to education. Pretty well every paper I read contains some variant on meaningful dialogue between the two sides is rare and controversy continues and... It seems there are two very polarised views on this and a few people have walked down the middle and tried to say a bit of this and a bit of that. The the, the problem is, to me at least, as I'm, I was reading through some of these, is it kind of felt like non-verbal autistic children in particular have essentially undergone lifelong ABA as an uncontrolled experiment. Now, I would like to think that most of us would contend this is sort of this kind of compliance focused conditioning effectively constitutes psychological and physical abuse it's been driven by financial incentives it's been driven by a lack of oversight research even into the harms of aba are apparently ignored whilst more humane and ethical alternatives really do kind of need to be brought forward um indeed in in february this year the irish parliament and and i apologize to any irish listeners i cannot pronounce the name of the houses of yeah um i know i'm dreadful the irish parliament published a, a document which was part of the joint committee on disability matters and aligning disability services with the united nations convention on the rights of persons with disabilities it's a long title it's a great document i'll link it in the show notes it's well worth reading um, but it states pretty damn clearly that behavioural interventionist therapies are ultimately founded on modifying disabled people's behaviour to meet goals decided by others, often to conform more closely with neurotypical communication, behaviour and norms, and therefore the committee believe it cannot uphold the UNCRPD principles of autonomy, dignity, right to identity and freedom from non-consensual or degrading treatment. They literally said ABA is not compliant with the UN Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities. This is a cross-parliamentary Western nation saying this. Anyway, so again, tied to not just that announcement, but also a lot of the other reading I've done, a certain number of ABA therapists, proponents, whatever even went so far as to refer to autism as a moving target. They, they've said that, you know, changes to diagnostic criteria of the years make it very difficult to apply ethical opinions to how it's developed. I, I have my own opinions on this. Uh, I have tried, tried so hard to be as unbiased as possible in, in, in a topic that, I, frankly, I found so distressing and, and abhorrent. So, yeah, if, if Mr. De Mr. De Havilland, if you're listening, my medieval history tutor, uh, sorry, I, I know you told me it's impossible to be emotionless, to, to not let our own feelings and experiences colour our interpretations of history. I, I had to take a few breaks when writing my notes, because as I'm about to explain, it's, it's, it's not good. But let's just take a moment and we shall dive into the deep, dark history that I dug out. Right, so Applied Behavioural Analysis, ABA, it emerged from behaviourism. Um, into psychology. And this was a school of thought that was developed in the 1910s, with researchers focused primarily on conditioning animals, building on the work of people like 
Pavlov, who, you know, was busy getting dogs to salivate at bells or something. The most famous such behaviourist, other than Pavlov, was someone called B.F. Skinner. He was a chap who rewarded rats with food when they performed certain behaviours. Now, this is called operant conditioning. The, and the basic idea behind it is that modifying behaviour through rewards and punishment. And it, and it was soon, quite quickly, extended into humans as well. Certainly in Britain, practitioners at the Institute of Psychiatry and at the Maudsley Hospital began taking this kind of behaviourist approach for treating mental health disorders as early as the 1950s. I, I found reports of the likes of Isaac Marx, Michael Gelder, Hans Einzig, who were, who were trying techniques like aversion and operant training for phobias, compulsions and, and the like. I should add that the Maudsley are surprisingly open about some of this, and their archives and history documents were fascinating, if somewhat nauseating at times. Um, a, a great read that really helped me uncover some of the earlier days of, of this kind of behaviourist approach. Meanwhile, in America, some behaviourist research has focused on lifelong conditions rather than just emerging issues. There was a, a chap at Indiana called Paul Fuller, who even tried positive reinforcement on adults with severe learning difficulties or vegetative human organisms, as he called them. Uh, yeah, let's, let's leave that one where it was, because that was quite the read. As you know, if you've listened to any of my, my previous uh, episodes on people like Hans Asperger, there, there wasn't a huge amount of research on learning difficulties at that time. Patients were often institutionalised for life. They, they were rarely assessed again after being admitted, and, and things like autism especially were reserved for only the most severe cases. Treating them was seen as basically futile, irrelevant. Uh, even those who were studying it, like uh, another one called Charles Fester, uh, admitted that autism research didn't really seem that important. Interestingly, it was this Furster chap who, who first did the, the sort of the first first Furster yeah. behaviorist experiment on autism in 1961. He locked an autistic child in a room daily for over a year and refused to respond when they cried. And, and he concluded that parents had made children autistic by responding to tantrums. This kind of medical parent blaming was quite common at that time. There, there was a term I came across called refrigerator mothers. Supposedly, they caused autism in their children. Uh, yeah. Uh, he actually wanted to learn about schizophrenia through his autism research, and, and like most medics, he wasn't really that interested in childhood disorders. He, he worked at uh, UCLA, because it was about the only place that was researching autism at the time, and, and indeed learning difficulties with conditioning techniques. And he encountered an assistant professor there, called Ivor Lovas. I told you that name would come back. Lovas decided that uh, verbal rewards alone weren't enough, especially for non-verbal children. He, he saw autistic kids as a blank slate, as, as not really people. Actually, uh, I wasn't going to, but the full quote is quite horrific. His full quote was, You see, you pretty much start from scratch when you work with an autistic child. You have a person in the physical sense. They have hair, a nose, a mouth. But they are not people in the psychological sense. I, I... This is one of the reasons I'm doing this episode alone, because I'm not going to subject my co-hosts to this. But being told that we're not people is somewhat upsetting, and I admit, again, I had to take something of a break here whilst writing my notes. Anyway, so he, he, he started using punishments like beatings and food deprivation when initial rewards 
failed. Other researchers apparently expressed skepticism at the time, but Lova said it was better for them than being institutionalised for life, and therefore he carried on. And, and nobody ever thought to question his aims. Lova, uh, over many, many years, spoke to the media about his harsh but necessary methods. And indeed, a number of journalists seemed to be relatively sympathetic uh, and sort of reassured that punishments were always a last resort. By the, the late 1960s, it looks like quite a few American researchers were doing behavioural analysis on autism, and they, um, they, they formed a number of, of professional psychiatric groups to collaborate across their field. I, I, I spotted a reference to a, a Life magazine article. Uh, from 1965 that covered Lovas and his work and I, I'm gonna read a section of it to you now because I think it helps to describe who this person was. Lovas believes the whole present concept of mental illness is flawed because it relieves the patient of responsibility for his actions. Lovas is convinced on the basis of his experience and that of other researchers that by forcing a change in a child's outward behaviour, he can affect an inward psychological change. For example, if he could make Pamela go through the motions of paying attention, she would eventually begin to pay genuine attention. Lovas feels that by, one, holding any mentally crippled child accountable for his behaviour, and two, forcing him to act normal, he can push the child towards normality. Okay. Deep breath. Lovas was certainly a leading ABA figure, thanks to his bold experiments and media savviness, but psychoanalytic theory still dominated autism treatment, even then. Uh, Bruno Brutelheim, for example, made similar claims being able to cure children. Again, cure. Uh -huh. What I find interesting is that parents seem to be quite interested in Lovas's work. Groups like the National Society for Autistic Children invited him to speak at quite a few places. And with very few treatment options available, many seem to have welcomed his hands-on approach um, to analysis of this refrigerator mother kind of thing. There was a somebody made the, the reference that, like I said, um, Bettelheim took kids from parents. Lovas trains them as co-therapists which many saw as being more empowering, I suppose. During the 1970s and 80s, Lovas expanded ABA research and began working with some very young children. Some have complained that 40-hour weekly treatment was somewhat excessive, and as views of disability evolved, he did drop the harshest of punishments, like electric shock. His views, however, seem to have remained on the less pleasant side. In an interview in January 1974 with Psychology Today, when asked if autistic children are bright, he replies, and I apologise now for the language, In one sense, autistic children are retarded. After all, many of them don't speak, are unable to dress themselves, and are not toilet trained. So they are retarded in the sense that they are far behind their age group in the kinds of things they can do. I made a note at the beginning of this episode about language and I kind of wish I had pre-warned you that words like this might creep in. I'm so sorry for having to repeat them but I hope this helps to explain the kind of person we're dealing with here. At the same time as all of this, behaviourism was gradually starting to replace psychoanalysis across psychiatry. Biological understandings of autism are starting to emerge, sort of starting to contradict the view that parents caused it psychologically. By the late 80s, the understanding of autism has started to be transformed, most 
leave for the better, although some issues still linger to today. At least we no longer blame parents for their kids' autism. Um, also, I should say, it's not about vaccines. Go back and listen to our episodes on jabs and bad science if you want to know about that particular story of fraud and child abuse. Not repeating it now, but vaccines are good. They result in living people, not autism. Anyway, so it's within the context of the 1980s slowly improving in terms of understanding of the biology and so forth that Lovas made something of a bombshell claim in 1987, the one I mentioned earlier on, uh, that ABA was curing 47% of young patients. For the first time, it, it seems like there was solid proof it was effective. Stories like, um, what was it called now? Let Me Hear Your Voice, which was an emotional account of a family triumphing over autism, which I only found because Lovas wrote the foreword for it, then started spreading the whole ABA new image as, as triumph over adversity. What I find quite interesting, actually, is that several attempts to replicate that 1987 study have failed. Critics have quite rightly said the research lacked vigour. Uh, a number of research organisations, in fact, have said that pretty well every single one of the over 70 studies Lovas published would fail standard requirements. And that's before we even touch on the huge ethical issues. By this time, we're, we're heading into the early 90s and we're starting to see more of an emergence of sort of autistic campaigners and self-advocates, people who are arguing that ABA unethically aimed to eliminate harmless autistic behaviours. Many of the reports and articles I've read suggest that a common point was that ABA curtailed communication and self-soothing behaviours like stimming, causing lasting trauma and learned helplessness. Uh, though physical punishments are pretty rare now, uh, almost every single autistic or ABA survivor account I read contends that ABA remains psychologically abusive and deeply scarring. But building off of the back of better understanding of autism, there was this change in how doctors saw it. Instead of pointing fingers at parents and saying they were the reason their kids were autistic, doctors began encouraging mums and dads to look for ways to help their little ones. You know, the, the, this shift happens just before we kind of see quite a big uptick in autism diagnoses during the late 90s, early noughties. And so with more kids being labelled as autistic, naturally there were loads of parents on the hunt for treatments. Now, ABA, with its wash and brush up and hiding of inconvenient child abuse behind nice videos and charity endorsements, came back to the fore and it was pitched to these parents as a, as a basically a very few straightforward steps. It felt kind of familiar because it's a little bit like the old stick and carrot method a lot of parents and teachers use. A reward for the good, a telling off for the not so good. And it felt like common sense. Plus, the new ABA was gentler and it involved parents directly and had all these claims of being backed by science. You know, chuck in a few success stories and voila, before you know it, it's being hailed as the, the gold standard, the bee's knees, the cat's pyjamas for, for, for treating autism. And now that I've set the scene, let's talk about today. Is it still controversial? Well, anyone who follows our Twitter account will have seen us linking to an article by Shakedi Shakedi and Sandoval Norton, which was entitled Long-Term ABA Therapy is Abusive, a response. I'll include a link in the show notes because it's a good article and well worth a read. But in a nutshell, it is a response to a response. 
Confused yet? Yeah, I was. Apparently this is normal. Scientists seem to publish against each other. I, I might have to find a scientist to come and explain this one day. But anyway, um, 2019, the, the latest update from the CDC showed that about 31% of children with autism are also seen as intellectually disabled. Moreover, between 25 and 50% of these kids don't develop the ability to speak functionally. Now, Sandoval Norton and Shikardis, they, they undertook a review of this and focused specifically on the nonverbal, intellectually disabled autistic children in their review. And they discussed how ABA works with this group. They, they make it clear that ABA is a behavior modification method. It's all about using rewards and punishments to alter and enhance behaviors to improve language skills, social interactions, and, you know, more in, with, with children who have got autism. Or autistic children, I should say, really, shouldn't I? The core idea behind ABA, it's basically, it's that behaviors are primarily driven by outside triggers. Hence this belief that rewarding or punishing a child can encourage or discourage certain behaviors. However, since ABA zeroes in only on the external behaviour, ignoring inner feelings like thoughts or emotions, this paper highlighted concerns and they provided evidence that suggested ABA would lead to psychological or physical harm and criticised the whole field of ABA, raising concern that practitioners were effectively displaying an unethical behaviour. I think they were putting it quite mildly, to be honest, having read an awful lot of this now. Um, but three proponents of ABA, uh, Graki, Rupel and Zane, responded. They criticised the Sandoval, Norden, Shikardi uh, article. They presented studies that claims to refute the original paper's points. But there's a bit of a hitch here, and I've read through it. The, the, the studies that they presented didn't specifically focus on the nonverbal intellectually disabled autistic children, nor do they really tackle the primary criticism of ABA. So the lovely Sandal and Shikardis, they replied, and it's a porker of a read, honestly. They, they clearly state, research in ABA continues to neglect the structure of the autistic brain. They clearly state that research in ABA continues to neglect the structure of the autistic brain, the overstimulation of the autistic brain, the trajectory of child's development, or the complex nature of human psychology. As all of these factors were ignored in the response and are ignored in ABA practice itself, providing a treatment that causes pain in exchange for no benefit, even if unknowingly, is tantamount to torture and violates the most basic requirement of any therapy, to do no harm. So, like I say, pretty powerful uh, paper and I recommend it. Anyway, so I, I was aware of this paper and the Irish Parliament paper, but I didn't really know that much more to my terrible discredit. So whilst researching this episode, as I said, I, I reached out to primary sources and oh my, did I find out a lot more. And I, I've tried very hard to bring this all together in some kind of coherent mass. So, right, as, as ABA grew more popular, it did start attracting more controversy. Part of this has been academic back and forth, as I've just outlined, and it seems scientists have argued the benefits of ABA are somewhat overblown. As I mentioned, some have tried and failed to reproduce this famous 1987 LOVAS study. Others have criticised the quality of ABA research overall. One institution even concluded there wasn't 
much high quality evidence for the Lovas approach, and and some have have and some have knocked the the lack of randomized controlled trials in ABA, which obviously is considered the gold standard for evidence based medicine. As I said earlier, I kept finding evidence that ABA has always faced some academic doubt in varying degrees since the 1960s, and as I said a few moments ago in the early 90s, it, it it's faced a bit of a new challenge from autistic people ourselves. No, uh, say it all again. As I said earlier, I kept finding evidence. As I said earlier, I kept finding evidence that ABA has always faced some academic doubt in varying degrees since the 1960s. And indeed, as I said a few moments ago, since the 1990s, it's faced a new challenge from autistic people ourselves. R rather than questioning how well ABA works, we've been arguing there's no need for therapy at all. Many autistic people see ABA as part of a system that wrongly considers autism a disease. So I feel comfortable saying most of us take issue with ABA's core aims of curing us or making us normal, as well as campaigning against those physical punishments. The critiques I've read have emerged as autistic people have got more involved in debates around autism and medicine in the last 25 or so years, and they've been fascinating, but also deeply worrying. Before, before this, autism organisations like the Autism Society of America or our own National Autistic Society were, and still are, mainly run by parents. Autistic people themselves were often shut out of discussions. From the late 1980s, there was a little bit of a shift in, in this, thanks to autistic advocates like uh, Temple Grandin, who I first heard on a CBS podcast last year, and I highly recommend her book, by the way, Amazing Woman, um, uh, sharing experiences in, in, their, in their books, in talks, in going to sort of big conversations and, and workshops with other, other people within the industry. Soon, Autistic-run groups started springing up um, in person and more latterly online, holding their own conferences and retreats. In the UK, autistic people have partnered with the NAS to, to launch publications written and edited by autistics. Individually or together, we've started making our voices heard in new ways. Now, the the sort of the, the neurodiversity movement, for want of a better term, is a somewhat diverse bunch. Just listen to my co-hosts. We're very different and interesting people. But most neurodivergent people share, I would like to say, some core beliefs. The, 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 the problems blamed on autistic behaviour actually come from a lack of tolerance by non-autistics. And by rejecting the medical view of autism as a disorder, many of us just see it as a neutral difference. You know, if I could draw parallels with sexuality for a moment, you know, we could argue that wrongly medicalizing either is frankly foolish. You know, th that kind of position aligns us with the cognitive models in psychology that emphasize brain wiring differences rather than pathologies. You know, it paints it paints autism as a nuanced spectrum rather than a problem to be fixed. So I guess unsurprisingly, autistic campaigners have often targeted the top autistic medical treatment, A, B. A. Through rejecting this goal of a cure, some have also highlighted ABA's physically abusive aspects. I found organisations that support it, but also say they oppose harmful treatments, which, in my reading, we would likely call torture if applied to non-autistic kids. 
One blog I read by a survivor of ABA says that it is simply abuse, not therapy for autistic people. What I find really interesting and, and really quite important is that these are not just criticisms of ABA's past. Campaigners have protested centres that still use punishments like electric shocks, and there are still centres that use electric shocks. That was a terrifying revelation for me. Um, people have, have argued that there's been preventable deaths at some of these facilities. Beyond physical harms, ABA does discourage autistic communication and self-soothing behaviours like stimming. It takes away voice and it promotes compliance. And, and this kind of leads to lasting trauma and, and learned helplessness. And this is where the psychological abuse comes in. Some people believe even that the concern over the physical abuse has distracted from these deeper ABA issues. I read several arguments that suggested the assumptions that ethic concerns are, are, are dealt with because they're no longer physically beating kids. And this has allowed ABA to avoid proper scrutiny. Many made clear that their strong dislike for ABA's goal of eliminating autistic behaviours was driven by well, straightforward ethics. Many of us see these as sort of an intrinsic aspect of personality that only social misunderstandings make us problematic. Autistic people, kids especially, shouldn't be constantly told that their natural ways are wrong and unacceptable. The, the, the head of autism research at London's Institute of Education had somewhat similar worries about ABA forcing kids to appear indistinguishable from peers, to use that, that term again. A, a number of autistic campaigners also condemn other autism therapies as well, things like transcranial stimulation, dolphin therapy, which is not very nice for dolphins, and even unusual and weird diets are all kind of rejected as unproven and unethical. ABA just attracts a particular ire as the most promoted and supposedly science-based approach. And I would suggest this ought to raise some flags. Few people seem to criticise speech therapy or occupational therapy. I, I've had speech therapy and it helped me enormously without causing pain or significant mental anguish. I run a podcast, for goodness sakes, so I must be able to say something right. Although I'm sure there'll be someone telling me I'm saying it all wrong. But moving, moving, moving on to like the debates, because... They have played out differently across countries. ABA has much wider support in the US compared with here in the UK. And I think this is kind of interconnected historically for, for the reasons that I've already outlined, as well as certain national differences as well. ABA first grew big in the US because Lovas was there. He promoted it heavily. And, and indeed, the private health system and insurance companies and lobbying groups and money bred it fast. Conversely, the NHS is somewhat slow to pick up on new therapies and as far as i can tell it doesn't offer aba in in the us i found lots of competing autism organizations vying for attention and funds aggressively procure ones like autism speaks have kind of eclipsed the more cautious groups here in the uk the biggest group is the national autistic society the nas they kind of occupy a unique space as like the authority on autism in the uk and whilst they have a reluctance to back ABA, which has helped to limit its spread, and, and indeed they, they argue it kind of reflects their more neurodiversity-friendly ethos and connections and all that kind of thing, rather than trying to you know, cure kids, it's more about focusing on improving their lives. But it was pointed out to me, whilst the NAS refuses to endorse ABA, they do both endorse and indeed use PBS, which is Positive Behaviour Support 
which many OCC people see as being closely related. Uh, indeed, that Irish parliamentary paper that I, I talked about earlier on suggested that it could also fail the UN test. Uh, NAS do, however, remind readers that many autistics don't see autism as a disease needing curing. So that's, you know, better than many others. Which, and, you know, like I say, it contrasts with groups like Autism Speaks, which don't question ABA's treatment aims and indeed use language akin to curing the autism. Anyway, I've been talking for a while and I suspect you're getting bored of me. I, I think it's fair to say that ABA is probably not the best treatment for autistic people. I, I would go so far as to say that when we talk about it, maybe we should start calling it autistic conversion therapy because it's abusive and wrong in so many ways. It has taken me weeks to pull these notes together and, and there is so, so much more I could talk about. I might do a deep dive into some of Lovas's reports or even his book one day, if I can ever find the spoons. But until then, say no to ABA, say yes to the social model, and thank you as ever for listening. I, I hope to have a few more co-hosts along for the next episode where we will tackle something not quite so horrific. And, you know, I look forward to that. But until then, take care and have a great week. Bye for now. Whilst I was editing this episode, I got thinking about my own childhood. Now, I was never forced into ABA or anything like that, but I was a difficult child. And I remember learning to read, or at least learning to read for pleasure. And it only really happened when my mum gave me an old Terry Pratchett Discworld book. And it kindled in me a lifelong love of learning and, and reading. There was something that spoke to me. And I was thinking about this because pretty much anyone who's ever read a Terry Pratchett book knows some of his, his thoughts on, on things like this. And I remembered he did a, a, a book tour in, I think, 2009-2010 and one of the things he was asked about was sort of the, the the golden rule that flows through most of his his writings and he was asked about this and you know he talked about you know sound bites things like do as you would be done by etc but he said his general thought on all of this was that evil starts when you treat other people as things there are perhaps worse crimes but they all begin when you treat other people as things. Now, I know that that is attributed to the wonderful Granny Weatherwax in at least one of the books, but the fact is that he kept repeating it. It was something that ran through, and I, I do think that that applies here to ABA. It treats autistic people as things.